You're listening to Westside Church. For more information, visit us at westsideinfo.com. Welcome, welcome on this beautiful July day. I cannot believe that we're already in July. I have no idea where June went. You blink and it's gone. Um, so July, yeah, it's coming up. we got a really big, important trip coming up July 16th through the 23rd. This is in your handouts uh, in the special edition Matt Frost sermon notes. Uh, that you see, we have just the passage in blanks for all of you to take your notes on. So copious amounts of notes. But yeah, I uh, encourage you, yeah, throw this up on your fridge, put this in your Bibles, have this in the spot where you spend your time uh, with the Lord um, to pray for this team. Um, the enemy doesn't want the message the, of the good news to be spread, and he's trying everything that he can to try to disrupt this trip and cause headaches for the team. Uh, so just keep them in prayer. As I head out, we're going to see some amazing and hear some amazing uh, testimonies of the goodness of God, his faithfulness, the workings of the Holy Spirit upon the lives of those down in Mexico. So yeah, July 16th through the 23rd, keep them in prayer. Uh, before I came down this morning, my mother-in-law asked me if I, if I get nervous doing this. And I was actually asked about that last week, too, nervous coming up. And yeah, I most certainly do. <laughs> it's, um, it's a very, uh, what's the right word? Frightful thing to, to come and bring the word of God, the perfect, active, powerful word of God uh, to us. In my, and I do not wish to cause any harm to, to misinterpret what God has given to us. And so come, yeah, in fear and trembling before you all as brothers and sisters uh, each time I, I speak. But uh, it's a privilege, it's an honor, and I really, and I really do enjoy it. So we are going to continue on in this series. We're in a small series that are looking at some of the foundational truths of our faith. Uh, those truths that we believe as followers of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who is King of Kings, Lord of Lords, and the Risen One. Amen. Uh, one of the foundations of the truth that we have is that God is love. And I wanted to discuss what this meant by taking a look at what First John chapter 4 tells us concerning this attribute. And as we go through this together this morning, I would encourage you to pay close attention specifically to the initiative of God. Because his initiative plays such a significant role in his interactions with each one of us. And as we go through this, I hope to show how we are to integrate, or rather how to marry our theology, our understanding of who God is, with how we are to live out our day-to-day lives in light of God's love for us. You've often heard me say that I really prefer the English Standard Version uh, the ESV, that's the current translation I've been using for quite some time. Uh, and I don't think I've ever explained why. Uh, the ESV, the English Standard Version, is a translation that falls within the literal translation types. Meaning that the translation team has attempted to translate as literally as possible from the original language, word for word, keep the f- same form, to keep structure, trying to use the same idioms, Uh, They're contained in the original languages of Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. And so that's why I I prefer this translation at the moment, and probably will for a little bit of time. So that's why. Uh, Let's 
take a look at our small passage this morning, 1 John 4, 7 through 11. And as a good dad joke, hopefully this will help us remind us what the passage is. 7-Eleven, open all the time, available to you all the time, just like God's love. So 7-Eleven, hopefully you remember that. Huh, Sophia? <laughs> all right, so 1 John 4, 7 through 11. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So before the author of John gets into addressing his topic about how we are to live out our lives, how we are to live out our, the theology in which we understand and comprehend, he addresses his audience as beloved, demonstrating his love for his audience prior to getting into the meat of his writing. And this term really could be translated as dear, close family members, brothers and sisters. Here we see the author, and we don't know exactly who the author is because it's not told to us. It could be John of Zebedee, the son of Zebedee, or it could be John the Elder. We just don't know. That is attributed to John. So the author is practicing what he is about to preach. And this reality of this phrase, born of God, is such an amazing truth. Because it does. It involves the initiative of God. And notice within this very small portion of scripture that God is mentioned 13 times alongside the word love that's being used 11 times, all within five small verses. The repetition of these words should give us a clue as to who and to what is of importance. You see, God already had a plan in place to rescue and redeem for those who freely choose to accept it, to be brought into his family, into the household of faith. We that are born of God, each of us, those that have accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, are part of the household of faith. That's primarily the reason why you hear me say, if when I welcome you into a service or dismiss you from a service, we say, brothers and sisters. Because really, that is the reality of what it means to be born again, to be brought into the household of faith. But being born again is not solely for just your own benefit one whose your status is, has been changed. Your being born again and brought into this new family affects and impacts the entire household. It benefits others as well. We see that so freely today with the experience of a new birth that's being brought into the family, or a new child that's been adopted into a family. This is such a beautiful picture of what this means to be born of God born into the eternal family of God with and through the perfect father. Being born of God and brought into his family is solely based upon one thing and one thing alone. And that is accepting the truth of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ that brings you into the family, gives you permission to join that family. 
And when you are, join that family, it is a permanent status change. It is very similar in respects to what we see in adoption today, where one individual that's been brought into this world gets then transferred into a totally different family, gaining all of the rights and all the privileges of that new family. As some of you may know or not know, I am the result of this. I was adopted and brought into a wonderful family, having my status changed, gaining all of the rights and all the privileges that come with being part of the Frosthold and the Frost family. Those that are the children of God, that are part of his family, gain the inheritance and all of the rights and all the privileges of the king of the universe. And this is what John is going to go on to explain to us throughout what he wrote. Our love for one another is, is the effect or should result from two things. The new birth from which we have given to us by God. And then the continuing experiential personal knowledge that we have with God. This knowledge of God comes from walking with him throughout our entire life. As we become transformed, or the fancy word is sanctified, becoming it's part of our sanctification, being transformed into the image of Christ. And the word that's used here for know is the Greek word that means to know relationally, or to know personally, or know through experience. Because if you know God by experience, you know him relationally, know him personally, the only result we have of that relationship would be to love one another. And as we'll see this all throughout the passage, this word love. Uh, Kenneth Woost, in his book, Word Studies in the Greek New Testament, says that John uses this word that means a love that impels one to sacrifice oneself for the benefit of the object loved. It's a love that really should drive us to sacrifice ourselves for the benefit of others. Why? Because he first loved us, and that love of God flows out from the Father. As part of our continued life transformation into the image of Christ, we are to love one another. And we love one another because we know by experience, personally and relationally, the love of God that's given to us and the price that was paid for us to have that relationship with him. However, those that do not love, as verse 8 continues on, saying, have not known. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Do not take this verse out of context and try to infer that anyone that loves is part of the household of God, that they automatically must believe in Jesus because they love. For those that are not yet children of God can demonstrate some form of love to other people. But they have not known true love, meaning that they are not acquainted with God. That those who have no continued relationship with God the Father are those who do not truly love one another. And their lack of true love demonstrates their relationship, or lack thereof, with the Father. But notice what John says here, that God is love. This isn't the current trend that we see in TikTok and Facebook and Insta, 
and all those other social media things that say that love is God. <laughs> to say that love is God is to put the emphasis on the wrong noun. Those that say that love is God is saying that the one controlling quality that upholds and created the universe is love. However, this is not a biblical concept. The source of love is God. God, as to his very nature, is love. And this love is being defined as unconditional and self-sacrificial. You see, his love is so entwined throughout the character of God. For love doesn't overrule. It doesn't replace any of the other attributes of God. They are in perfect harmony and expressed to us in their perfection, seen continually throughout Scripture. You see, we see this throughout Scripture. There are some who say, that's not the case. That the God that described in the Old Testament only shows his wrath and his vengeance. But then we get to that proverbial white page that separates the Old and the New Testaments at 400 years of silence, and somehow God now appears, manifests as love and mercy and kindness. The fact is, God never changes. His character is the same. The fact that God is loving, is personal, and is active throughout the scriptures is a testament to his love. Don't let people fool you into thinking otherwise. For our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And since this is the case, we can know that our God is kind, is merciful, is gracious, just, holy, and wrathful. In all the scriptures, we can see that it is a God that is holy, 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 and loves us. Let's see what John says next in verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. The verse starts off with, in this is love. But what is this referring to? Well, it's referring to a definite, specific moment of time when God revealed at the right moment his love for mankind. God's love was made manifest. Literally, it means to be brought out into the light. Clearly, the love of God was literally made visible to us. And this verb usage that John uses for manifest looks, points at the entire life of Jesus Christ. His birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, and the work he continues to do for us on our behalf, all being brought out into the light. It's not hidden somewhere. It's not been shoved into a corner, into the back corners of some place, hidden by a veil. It has been brought out into the light. This carries the same truth that the Gospel of John talks about. In John chapter 1, verse 14, he says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This Word is the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity. The, 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 the fancy word, the hypostatic union, the combination of 100% God and 100% man in the same person has been revealed to us, made manifest to us. Who in John chapter 1, verse 1 says that this person was face to face with God the Father, expressing true love, true intimacy, perfect fellowship 
one another. This truth that God made manifest, again, points to the revealing of the manner in which God demonstrates his love towards us. It's not just a reaction to mankind because of the predicament that we put ourselves in when Adam disobeyed the voice of God way back in Genesis chapter 3. Now, it was manifested as it was already part of God's amazing plan since before the foundations of the earth. God's plan for restoring mankind has always been part of the mission of Jesus Christ. The text says that God sent his only son. Again, love being shown to us through the actions and the initiative of God. But love is not only shown to us in just the action of sending alone. For elsewhere, you can read in 1 John in particular, that says that love was shown to us by taking away our sins and by destroying the works of the devil. Love was shown to us through sending Jesus. Eternal life may then be obtained by those who choose it. And the verse says that God sent. Christ is the sent one. That's where we get the word, the apostle, right? The sent one. The author of Hebrews tells us that Christ is an apostle. Hebrews 3, 1, 3, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Jesus was sent with a mission and with the credentials to carry out his mission as the only begotten one. You may have heard that phrase before, only begotten one. It's a very strange word usage that's been translated in English for us. And the best way to try to understand what only begotten means is one of a kind. The uniqueness of Jesus is what only begotten means. We see this phrase that's used elsewhere in the New Testament. Again, it speaks to uniqueness, one of a kindness. We see this in the book of Hebrews. When Abraham is offering up his son Isaac, it says that he, Abraham, who had received the promises, was in the act of offering up his only begotten son. But if you recall, Isaac was not his single and only son. In fact, Isaac, according to scripture, was the second born at least 13 years younger than his older brother Ishmael. And you can read that wonderful narrative and that account in Genesis chapter 17. Again, only begotten speaks to, to the uniqueness. That is what is meant by this phrase. The uniqueness of Jesus, the logos, the second person of the Trinity. It was he who was sent by God the Father, thus taking the initiative for mankind. And time and time again, we see God taking the initiative. It's seen all throughout scripture, seen in the very beginning pages where God is taking the initiative and creates us seen in the promises in which he initiated and upholds and will continue to uphold with Noah, Abraham, and with David. Ultimately seen in the coming one, the son of man, who Daniel chapter 7 tells us is the one who rides above the clouds of heaven. Verse 10 goes on to say that God sent his only son into the world. The reality that John is speaking of when he uses the verb sent in this context, points to the action of God that was done in the past, but has lasting effects. This is such incredible truth to this, such incredible lasting effects as it continues onward throughout eternity. And he was sent, why? 
so that we might live through him. That we refers to those who are part of the household of faith. And the invite to join the household of faith is open to anyone willing to accept it. All that you do is accept that Jesus Christ died on your behalf, rose again from the grave, and is alive forevermore, coming back to bring you back home to him. You accept and believe that, you are included in part, hold of, part of a household of faith. Your status has been changed. You're brought in to the new family. And this life that we're offered then is solely based upon Jesus Christ, who offers us eternal life through him, access to God the Father through him. But our life through Jesus is not just so that individually we become a better person. It's not that we just stop sinful practices and start doing different choice, making different moral choices. Our life through Jesus Christ is so that we've been given that new life. And as a result of this newness of life, we are called to love like he did. With a love that urges one to sacrifice oneself for the benefit of of others. Verse 10 goes on, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. In this is love. John is about to explain to us the most powerful reality of the ultimate expression of love, despite the fact that we were enemies of God. See, there is nothing within us that can awaken God's love. For God has loved us. He is the one who takes the initiative there. Did so before the foundations of the earth were created. He has always taken the initiative to love. But despite that, despite the fact that what, what Paul says in Romans 5, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners. Despite the fact we are enemies against God. This is the ultimate display of loving one's enemy, is it not? Again, John is reiterating the fact that God took the initiative, but he loved us. John Stott, in his commentary on this portion of scripture, says, if God, his, speaking of God, if, if his judging is in love, his loving is also in justice. He who is love is light and fire as well. Far from condoning sin, his love has found a way to expose it because God is light and to consume it because he, God, is fire without destroying the sinner but rather saving him. In sending the Son, God sent the costliest remedy to those that were not worthy of his love due to our sin. This is the most magnificent manifestation of love known to mankind. And here in verse 10, John talks about the reason why the Son was sent to be the propitiation for our sins. How many of you in the last 10 years have used the word propitiation? It's very, Aaron, you don't count. <laughs> Going to the Biblical Institute of Los Angeles, I'm sure you wrote many papers on propitiation. But I know that this word is not a common word in a usage. So hopefully I can help understand what it means and what John is actually referring to when we look at it in our text. It's used in a legal sense to define the action of a person that works to reconcile two parties. Meaning two parties that are not able to be reconciled 
not able to satisfy the offended party, they're not able to be brought back into right relationship. But a third person comes in to reconcile them back together, and that person propitiated. They're able to satisfy the need for justice, thus bringing reconciliation. And this Greek word that's translated into English as propitiation would have pointed the hearers of John's writing way back to the Old Testament. They would have pointed back to the lid, specifically, that was placed on top of the Ark of the Covenant, which we know as the mercy seat. The mercy seat was the representation of the very throne of God within the tabernacle. This is where the cloud, or the visible symbol of God, was revealed. The mercy seat was placed on top of the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was the most sacred object within the tabernacle and was placed in that most precious and holy place, the Holy of Holies. That room that was separated from the rest of the tabernacle in the temple was constructed by a beautiful, thick, detailed veil. And that Ark contained within it ten commandments given by God to Moses. And then that lid or cover, the mercy seat, was placed over the Ark of the Covenant. And it's beautifully recorded for us back in Exodus chapter 25. So you can flip, scroll, turn, click over. It's on page 77 of my book. Exodus chapter 25, verses 17 through 22. And ye shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And ye shall make two cherubim of gold of hammered work shall you make them on two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on one end and one cherub on the other. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings and their faces one to another toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you should put in the mercy seat on top of the ark, And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. This place, this mercy seat, is where God was seated. At a place in which he was to give out mercy to man, when blood was sprinkled upon it, on that one day of the year, in the most holy of days, the day of atonement, or Yom Kippur. And the sprinkling of the blood on the mercy seat took away the condemnation of the people, the sins of the people. But that had to be repeated year after year after year. Leviticus 16 tells us that he, the high priest, shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side. It's very interesting to say that, to be very specific on which side to sprinkle the blood, as this would have been sprinkling the blood in front of Yahweh as he sat upon his throne. Passage goes on, says, In front of the mercy seat he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times, noting that this has been done in completion. For that one day. And then after that, he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people, 
and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. And all of this is a picture, it's a type, and it's a shadow of Jesus Christ. What's truly incredible is that Jesus' sacrifice was done once and for all. As our high priest, he doesn't have to go back into that holy of holies, cross that veil twice, year after year. His sacrifice was done once and for all. Thus he, the high priest, shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanliness of the people of Israel, because of their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall do it for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanliness. And this went on year after year after year until, until the perfect lamb of God was sacrificed. Thus, God sent forth Jesus Christ as the mercy seat through his faithfulness with his blood upon it. No longer are sacrifices needed to be made. No longer is there a veil hiding the mercy seat. The veil has been torn and the mercy seat has been covered for us and visible to all of us. We should just stop. Stop now. Let's have a praise and worship time. I mean, that is incredible. This reality of what was done and accomplished on our behalf. It's the beautiful, another beautiful facet of the good news. So how does this apply with our relationship with God? In our relationship with God, prior those who have accepted Jesus Christ are in a state of offense before God. As sin is an offense to a righteous and holy God, where sin is missing the mark of God's standard, which is perfection. And since sin offends God, God alone is the one who determines what the propitiation will be. For what could satisfy the need for God's justice and his holiness as it relates to sin? What could be done to deal with the wrath of God towards sin? I'm sure when we talk about the wrath of God, I'm sure some of you commonly have that idea of that vengeful, awful, wrathful God that's only in the Old Testament. I've said earlier, God, he doesn't change. His attitude concerning his creation not meeting his standard means that they're under wrath of God. Consider what John in his gospel in chapter 3 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And in the future, when the people of those who have not called upon Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. We see what happens to them in Revelation 6. As they're calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne from the wrath of the Lamb. Paul, of course, speaks to the wrath as well in Romans 5, 9. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood. Speaking of those who have accepted the work of Jesus Christ, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of of God. See, God doesn't simply remove his wrath. If he simply discarded it for no reason whatsoever, that would mean that he would be God who changed and therefore would be less than the perfect almighty one. But what did John just tell us about the character of God? That he is love. And so what does God do to deal with the offense that we caused against him? He takes the initiative. He 
through his love, provides the propitiation for us. This deals with the wrath of God by the love of God through the gift of God. And this gift that was given was not through some unwilling or reluctant sacrifice, but by the person of Jesus Christ through his death and resurrection. His sacrifice was done once and for all, not continually offered up for us. And there within is the power and work of that one-time death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, for it has eternal value. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned because we are from the family of Adam. We all fall short of the standard set by God. But those that accept Jesus Christ, now part of the new family, are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. Notice what, says, what Paul says here in verse 25, whom God put forward. This is the same idea of what John has said about how God's love was manifested, that the reality of the work of Christ was not some afterthought. The great theologian D.R. Shearer in his book on Romans, says that the cross is not some afterthought on God's part, concocted at the last moment to overcome the unforeseen consequences of sin. The truth is, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world has been part of God's plan of redemption, his plan for salvation, his plan for dealing with the problem of sin since before the foundation of the world. First Peter 1 says, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. See, God, we see and understand him to be judge. He is a perfect judge. God and in his perfection, does not forget about his justice. He does not try to compromise his wrath towards sin and his love. In the self-sacrifice of Jesus, both God's wrath and his love are satisfied completely. And when we think about God as a perfect judge, we shouldn't be surprised that as a perfect judge, he cares about the standards he established and will, up, will hold mankind accountable to following them. But yet, as perfect judge, he will do everything to forgive us and to restore us and to bring us fellowship with him. In fact, the perfect judge has granted all of us pardons, has offered us the opportunity to accept an eternal pardon. My father-in-law, Douglas Shear, has had this saying that just is so drilled into me. <laughs> the life is but a brief interval between a sentence of death pronounced and an execution awaiting to take place. But we, those who accept Jesus Christ, have been given pardons by our king, by the judge, to hand out to others as well. This pardon allows entrance into eternal life through the provision that God gave us through his love for us. And so it's through this love that John continues on in verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, 
we also ought to love one another. Again, noting what John is using, that intimate address for his audience of beloved brothers and sisters, those part of the household of faith. If God so loved us, notice that word if is not the normal conditional sense, but this is stating the fact that God does indeed love us. This if is pointing back to what John has just explained to us and providing the means to deal with both God's wrath and his justice. Because of that, we are to love one another. If God so loved us, it could be said slightly different. Since God loved us in such a way, let us love one another. This is our continuous duty as believers in Jesus Christ. We should not take this as meaning that it's optional for us. This is our moral obligation, our response as followers of Jesus Christ. But we are to do this in such a way that's done. But if we're to do this in such a way that's driven by an inner motivation to love others out of a sense of dutiful obligation, don't do it. It's not what we're called to. Just loving one another should not be considered a work for salvation or to gain approval of God, but solely out of the response for his love to us. And if we can grasp hold of this truth, that the love of God gives us is infinite worth, it will aid us as we love others, as we love God. And we need to do move on from just having this theological understanding of the love of God to work it out in our life. And the only way for us to be able to do that is to rely solely upon the Holy Spirit to do this in our daily lives. By relying on the Holy Spirit, we'll be able to exhibit the fruit of the Spirit, which, interesting enough, are all relational in nature, meaning we need each other, we need others, in order to show the evidence of the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. The word that's used here for love is, as you guessed it, the exact same word that John has used in our passage, a love that impels one to sacrifice oneself for the benefit of the person loved. So the entirety of the fruit of the Spirit, of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, against such things there is no law. So in explaining the reason why God sent his Son, giving us unmerited love, we cannot go back to living our lives like we were in the family of Adam, of being selfish, of living our lives just for ourselves. For those that have accepted Jesus Christ, you're put into this new family. We're proud of the new family and we have new family values. These new values mean that we need to deny ourselves daily, offering our lives as a continuous living sacrifice to our Father. We need to continue to care for one another, carrying each other's burdens, which Westside you do so well. I continue to urge you on to do more as we approach the return of Jesus Christ. Right. We cannot be indifferent to one another. Those that have accepted Jesus are part of the household of faith. So continue to treat each other as you have done so well, Westside, with respect and for love for one another. To love one another freely is the greatest expression of our love. Since the response to love one another is free doesn't mean that it's optional. 
As we get to know God, we become more aware of his holy love, of his righteous love, and of his merciful love. It's the very same kind that is part of the great commandment. Mark chapter 12, verses 30 31 says, And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. For there's no other commandment greater than these. Though the physical presence of Jesus Christ is not with us, we as his children, as part of his household, are to demonstrate the love of Christ to one another. If the people want to see Jesus, they should see him by the love that we have for one another. So the encouragement, brothers and sisters, is let us love one another. Amen?